Welcome back, ladies and gents, to Down for the Count. It is that time again to storyline recap. We are going to tell you all the stories from this week's Hell in a Cell coming to you Sunday, loud, live, and in color from Peacock Television. Okay? If you don't have your Peacock membership, you should definitely get one, 100%. But... <laughs> Let's get into these storylines because, honey, they are a doozy, okay? So let's start off with the very first storyline that I want to recap. We're going to talk about Mustafa Ali and Austin Theory. Now, you're going to have to excuse me because my voice is going in and out. I am definitely fighting to get over a cold, so please excuse me for that. If I have stops or pauses in this podcast, it is simply because I need to take a sip of water or I had to cough because I do have a cough due to the cold. No, I don't have COVID, thank God. But I am sick because of the weather change. With all that being said, let's get into this mess. Okay, so Mustafa Ali returned, made his glorious return to WWE after a very tumultuous and brief hiatus due to a contractual dispute as well as booking and everything else. If you want to know more about Mustafa Ali, a Google search will get you there faster than me adding that into this podcast. So just do a little quick Google search. Mustafa Ali returns shortly after WrestleMania during a segment with Miz and Austin Theory. Miz and Austin Theory were boasting about their WrestleMania wins, of course. And of course, Miz was out there talking about how he gave Logan Paul the match of the century, and then he took his ass to task because there was no way some YouTuber was going to outshine the Miz, Mike Mizanin, okay? Well, of course, Austin Theory was boasting about him and Mr. McMahon beating the hell out of Pat McAfee, omitting the fact that Pat McAfee beat Austin Theory while... Also, this awkward and weird exchange between Pat and Mr. McMahon and then the weight of Stone Cold Steve Austin coming out there to get at Pat McAfee. It was just, I mean, to get at Mr. McMahon, it was a very odd exchange on WrestleMania night. But we'll cover that on another day, I guess. With all that being said, Mustafa Ali came out there and was just like, Jesus Christ, you guys are mouth almighty tongue everlasting. At some point, you have to shut up. In the words of Sonia Deville, Cruella, put your hair up and shut up. Like, let's just get this going. We don't have time to sit up here and listen to you gloat for the next 30 years, okay? If you're going to be a champion, be a fighting champion and make sure you defend it against me. Oh, that was not that was not gonna happen, Austin Theory. How dare you address me in a way? I am the champion. I am one of the greatest United States champions of all time. It's a bit of a stretch, seeing as how his ass has only been champion for a short amount of time. And to Mike, to his credit, yes, he's a decent wrestler. But my humble opinion is that he shouldn't have gotten the title in the first place. I honestly believe that the feud should have continued with. Finn Balor and um, Finn Balor and Damian Priest. I couldn't catch his name. That food feud should have continued throughout this whole situation with 
um, Judgment Day, AJ Styles, Balor, and Liv. It makes sense to continue the feud and have the belt included. Damian was obviously pissed about dropping his title, and it would only strengthen their numbers and strengthen Judgment Day for Damian to get that title back at some point. So in my mind, giving the title to Austin Theory was a waste of time. But when Mustafa Ali popped up, I said this actually could give us some reprieve with that championship. And it's definitely something Mustafa Ali greatly deserves and has earned over the years. With all that being said, Mustafa Ali made it very clear what he wanted to do. Austin backed off and gave the match to The Miz, to which they had competed I'm not quite sure who won. I'm assuming The Miz won by cheating. And then this started a few weeks of Mustafa Ali being embroiled in a match with one of them that they either set up through Vince McMahon or was given to him to punish him for some reason. And it continued to happen for weeks and weeks. The last match that I remember seeing between Mustafa Ali and Austin Theory and Miz, period, was one where they set up a match with him and Veer. Now, if you don't know who Veer is, Veer is a um, Indian man who pretty much came into um, WWE and has dominated ever since he's been there. He is aggressive. He's mean. He is surly. And he is always ready to tear someone limb from limb. He puts them in this aggressive hold that knocks them out immediately. It looks like it's incredibly painful. And this man has not lost a match since he's been there. And every talent he goes up against, he crushes with ease. So it was very clear what was going to happen. Veer has Mustafa Ali on height and weight. And in this case, I just knew that Mustafa was going to get crushed. He would probably get some offense off, but it wouldn't be enough to best Veer. And that's exactly what happened. Not to mention, The Miz was the referee for that match, if I recall. If I'm wrong, you can correct me, but I believe that's the way that it went. He also had a match with another... I can't remember who he had a match with, but he had a match with someone else where The Miz was the referee for that. And The Miz cheated tremendously because Mustafa had the match won at least twice. So it was very interesting to me how this went down. But either way, now we're at the point where we get to the nitty gritty of how this match actually came about. So Monday Night Raw rolls around. And Austin Theory, of course, in his grandiosity fashion and just living the life of being the grand dick sucker of dick suckers. Well, Monday Night Raw rolls around and Mustafa Ali gets the opportunity of a lifetime. He finally gets a fair referee. And if he beats Champa, he gets to go up against the one and only dick sucking. You know, he's got the perfect dick sucking lips. They're pretty big and they're pink. You know, they would wrap around a dick pretty nicely. Just saying. Just picture it in your mind. Just, just the lips. I'll give you a visual. Have you ever seen Monsters, Inc.? 
where they're pretty much extracting the screams from the kids. And like, you know, they did a test on one of the animals. They had the scream extraction machine and they did it. And so Sully and them put the machine so that it went on the monster instead of on little Boo. And the monster's lips looked like he had been sucking, put his lips like, you know how those girls did? Okay, okay, let me make it so it's plain. His lips look like two raw booty cheeks. That's what Austin Theory's lips look like, but they be dry. You know, they be desert dry, cracked, flaky. You know, they be real nasty. I don't know what's going on with some of these wrestlers, but baby, they be needing some extra help with their with they lips, okay? Because their lips be terrible. They be so terrible, y'all. They lips be looking like they ain't had a drink of water in years. I'd be like, baby, your lips need to be juicy, okay? You need to get you some Laneige. Well, bitch, go old school and get some Vaseline, honey. Here's what you do. When you got real super dry lips like Austin Theory, and AJ Styles is another culprit who always got dry-ass lips, you get yourself a toothbrush. Lay buy you a regular old cheap toothbrush from the dollar store. Get you some Vaseline and some salt or some sugar. Either one will work. And what you do is you take that salt and you put that on the brush with a little bit of Vaseline and you scrub your goddamn lips. You do sugar the same way. Sugar would be a better tasting abrasive. So I would use sugar. I wouldn't make it super fine. I actually would use a more coarse grain sugar. But just do that and scrub it on your lips just maybe once or twice a week. And then after that, you put yourself a nice set of Vaseline or some Laneige or some type of lip mask on there. Because girl... When I tell you your lips is dry, Austin Theory, like you've been sucking dick all day, honey. Give the dick a rest, okay? That little shriveled up peen that Vince McMahon got can take a minute, okay? It can it can rest for a minute. It don't always have to be in your mouth, sir. Okay? Anyway, that was a small tangent. I went on. I apologize. Anyway, Mustafa Ali had the match. Was doing fairly well. Was getting the drop on Champa. And then here comes Austin in his glorious bitch-made fashion. Coming out there and just brutalizing Mustafa Ali. Now, Mustafa Ali had on gear today, well, Monday, that was a reflection of one of his mother's saris. And I thought it was so sweet. And it was such a cute um, tribute to his mom. And I thought it was such a cute thing. But Austin Theory is bitch-made. I said it. I don't give a fuck who mad about it. Argue with your mama, bitch. He's bitch made. Anytime a motherfucker hides behind another grown man and is constantly bullying or making sure other people are browbeating down because you are insecure, you bitch made. And I will never take it back. I don't give a fuck how y'all feel about it. He's a bitch made punk. Okay, attack Mustafa Ali, beat him down, and then say, you know what? Why wait for the championship match? No, 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 no. Let's do it right now. Mustafa Ali gave it his best effort. But of course, after being brutalized in a match with Champa and then beaten down by this bitch made dick sucking bitch, he ended up losing his one opportunity. But the match for Hell in a Cell still stands. It is Austin Theory versus Mustafa Ali for the United States Championship. And I, for one, am all day rooting for Mustafa Ali. It's got to be Mustafa Ali. First of all, 
Austin Theory never should have had the championship to begin with. That's just true T. He never did anything to build himself up enough to be the United States champion. However, I understand that this probably was a way to make Mustafa Ali the ultimate babyface and give him a true triumph over all of the odds, including being up against the man-made machine of the McMahons and Mr. McMahon, and of course, his latest project and protege, Austin Theory. The biggest issue that I have with this trope is that when it does happen, it just goes to this big inflated balloon and then it deflates. And it makes things more difficult to follow and understand. And honestly, it doesn't have to be that way. They could have just did a true rivalry between the two, outside sans Mr. McMahon and the bullshit and left it at that. And then Mustafa could have bouts with Champa again. He could go up against the Miz, which I would do. And he would have, you know, some really cool matches as US champion. I'd give him the title for quite some time. To be honest, I let him keep it until Mania of next year. I think that's a perfect time to let him keep it. Unless he doesn't get it until like I, if okay. So if Mustafa doesn't get it now and he ends up getting it at SummerSlam, then I would let him keep it probably until Mania um, or till Royal Rumble. I think Royal Rumble's a, a good time for him to drop it. Um, but my money is going to be on Mustafa Ali. I won Mustafa with the championship. I'm sick of Austin Theory and his bullshit. And it's just time. It's just time to give him what he rightfully deserves. So now let's move into the story of the formation of Judgment Day and its ever going saga of attacking AJ Styles and now Finn Balor and now Liv Morgan. And the question of who is going to join Judgment Day next and what's their agenda? What are they supposed to be heading out to do? Most of the time a faction has an end game. We saw it with the bloodline. They wanted to have all the gold to rule the roost. We saw it with the shield. They were there to dismantle the authority, dismantle the system, and then put themselves at the very top. And the story goes on, and we can go even back even further with a more prominent or more popular faction with DX, which they were there to cause chaos, ruin, and of course, to put themselves at the top of the mountain. That seems to be a common goal for every faction that is created in wrestling history. With all that being said, Judgment Day was formed by our ever-loving opportunist Edge, Damian Priest, and now Rhea Ripley. This all started a few weeks back before WrestleMania. Edge came out there and made sure that he laid down the law as to who he wanted to challenge him for at WrestleMania. It wasn't for a title. It was for bragging rights. It was to prove he still got it. And it was also to prove that he wanted to go up against the best of the best. No bitch boys were allowed in his arena. Well, he laid down the law of what he wanted. And who should answer the call but AJ Styles? Now, this is a match that had been set in motion for years. Edge hadn't been known that he was going to come back to wrestle in 2019. And if he was to come back, everybody had been waiting for the Edge versus AJ Styles match. It was like watching two titans collide. So now, we watch. And we see how the storyline develops. 
Edge gets down to the ring and he tells AJ Styles, listen, I love the fact that you're the guy, but I don't want that little bitch that's been running around behind Omos for the last year and a half. I want AJ Styles, the guy who headlined Bullet Club, the guy who was over in TNA destroying aces and eights and being a part of it. I want the guy who was always on the tip of every wrestling fan's tongue. No matter where he was, he was the center. He was the focal point. I want that guy. I want that guy who has the tenacity, the balls to go all the way and do what is necessary to take me down. Well, AJ Styles made it very clear that that guy was right there, but Edge was like, I don't think he is. So what did he do? He did what Edge, the ultimate opportunist, always does. He caught him by surprise. He kicked AJ Styles in the balls, beat the hell out of him, and concertoed him in the middle of the ring. And then for weeks, we got a shift in character. This ominous, dark, purple character wearing suits and his hair slicked back. Eventually, he went to cut it. To which, side note, Edge has an issue with his hair. I don't know what the fuck is going on. I don't know what the fuck is going on. But his hair is not up to par, darling. Okay? It's always looking crunchy and stringy like straw and hay. And I'm just like, baby, cut it all off. Okay? Get you a toupee or something, bitch. But at this point, that hair dead. It's fried, honey. Okay, you need some just for men or something. Like, goddamn, what the fuck? <laughs> he looks terrible, hair-wise. <laughs> Anyways, for weeks we got Edge, the ominous, our ominous king, coming out and basically telling everybody why he did what he did, why the change came about. He made it very clear. That he didn't want no little punk ass, little, oh, I'm a face type of character to be going after him. No, no, no. He wanted someone who had a reason to come after him. He wanted to make sure that this was going to be as intense as possible. Because then he'd have no reason to complain when he beat him. This is all about Edge and making sure that he comes out on the top of the mountain and what better way to do that than to take out some of the top competitors to do it? And AJ Styles just happens to be the first victim. We saw at WrestleMania that things were going AJ Styles' way in that match. But all of a sudden, a key figure pops up. It's Damian Priest. Now, prior to Damian Priest joining Judgment Day, he was the United States champion. But he ended up losing that championship to Finn Balor, to which he was very upset and distraught about. He also made it very clear that the fans turned their back on him the moment that he lost that title to Balor. And as soon as he became no longer their champion, he was no more relevant to the WWE Universe. So he did what he thought was best. He joined Edge and gave him an edge over AJ Styles. No pun intended. He explained that joining Edge was a no-brainer. He's a Hall of Famer an icon of his time. Why wouldn't he join him? He'd get the best of everything being in his crew. He'd learn the ways of being the ultimate opportunist while also getting what he wants in the process. It was easy to join Edge because he didn't have to pander to the fans anymore. He only had to make sure 
that his omnipotent, ominous king was taken care of. And all that he has to do for that is ensure the win and make sure that they come out on top every time. So Judgment Day was formed and it looked like there was a missing component to the group. We all saw it. And of course, Edge and Damian Priest saw it. But as I always do with my wonderful mind, I predicted that there were going to be a third member to Judgment Day. And that one third woman was going to be a female. Because if we know anything about Edge, we know that outside of kayfabe, he is a man of the people. And he understands that opportunities aren't given necessarily. They're earned. But... Sometimes there needs to be a place where you have everyone represented, even if it's in a faction. And Edge is for the people. He always has been. He's a bit more understanding than most superstars are, and he's a bit more on the realistic side. So I kind of figured that it would be a female in his faction. Of all the factions that Edge has had, tag team and faction-wise, when he had the Edgeheads, he never had a female in his faction. So I figured in this day and age, in good old 2022, he would add a female to his faction, and he did. And the female he chose was Rhea Ripley. Now, Rhea Ripley made her debut in the faction of Judgment Day back at WrestleMania Backlash when she helped Edge once again gain a win over AJ Styles. Now, Damian Priest was ringside as well. Even though he was banned, he stopped at the, you know, at the ramp and didn't come to ringside technically. Then Finn came out to add some equal and neutralizing to this particular match. But they didn't count on Rhea Ripley being someone that would add to the match either. They just assumed that because Damian Priest was in Judgment Day, that was it. That was the end of the line. But oh, baby, they did not count on the ultimate opportunist always having an ace in the hole. Well, Rhea Ripley had been teaming with Liv Morgan for quite some time. They had an opportunity at the tag team titles three separate times. Once at WrestleMania and twice on two separate Monday Night Raws. They couldn't get the job done against Sasha and Naomi. This ultimately led to the dismantle of their tag team, with Rhea Ripley proclaiming that she was done tag teaming and that it was all about numero uno. She didn't need anybody else to be on her side because she got here by herself. She won championships by herself and she damn sure didn't need Liv Morgan to get that done. But then I guess Rhea had a little bit of epiphany. Yes, I can do all this by myself, but why should I? I mean, I could join Edge's faction and get a leg up on the competition. I'm strong, I'm smart, and I'm big enough to be a part of the group. I am just like one of the guys. I've got the weight, I've got the power, and I've got the talent. So that's exactly what she did. She joined, she caused a lot of ruckus when she cost AJ Styles his win over Edge at WrestleMania Backlash. But... She was a part of the group. And for a while, for the next couple of weeks, she would be an integral piece as to why Judgment Day has been able to get over so quickly. 
You see, AJ Styles and Finn Balor are not going to hit a woman. And she knows that, but she has no problem hitting them or attacking them. Side note. I'll give y'all a little side note. Let me explain something to y'all. And I want to make sure I do this disclaimer before I say what I'm about to say. Okay? I feel like this. If you're bold enough to put your hands on a man, don't expect him to be chivalrous and not put his hands back on you. There is no way on God's green earth that I would abdicate for a man to beat the hell out of a woman. But if a woman is purposefully stepping in your way and putting her hands on you and gaslighting you to beat her ass, give her what she wants. Give her what the fuck she wants. Rhea Ripley is not Liv Morgan. She is not Zelina Vega and she ain't Carmella. Rhea Ripley is the same motherfucking height as the rest of them. Matter of fact, she taller than AJ Styles. She looks down on that man. She looked Finn dead in the eye. She almost taller than him. And they almost the same weight. Same height, same weight. You got me fucked up. I'd have slapped the dog piss out of her. If I can't hit you, I will shake the shit out your bitch ass. Okay? I'd have shook your little ass. I will trip you. Whatever the fuck I got to do to get you out my way, ho. Because you are causing me more problems than you need to. Furthermore, you put your hands on me first, bitch. I would not know. No, I'd have slapped the dog shit out of her ass. She'd have been on the floor crying. Looking like, how could you hit me, bitch? How could you hit me? The fuck? But let's get back into the storytelling. <laughs> Baby. Now, Liv Morgan comes into play a little bit later. Because as they were still outmanned three to two, they needed a third competitor and they needed her to be a woman so that they can neutralize Rhea Ripley and then it can be even killed across the board for AJ Styles and Finn Balor. Now, they knew that Liv Morgan had issues with Rhea Ripley. She was attacked by Rhea Ripley multiple times after their match together and she was humiliated in front of everybody. On Monday Night Raw, right after their match, she was attacked and beaten up by Rhea Ripley, left in the middle of the ring, essentially crying, which is what Liv always does. <laughs> Poor Liv. She put crying tears under her eyes. She definitely gonna cry, baby. Anyway, so the next week, Finn and AJ Styles went to Liv and said, listen, we know you have your problems with Rhea Ripley. Why don't you roll with us and we can take them all out together? Liv was hesitant at first. She said, well, you know what? I'll think about it. And it looked as if Liv doubted what she could bring to the table. I mean, I can understand her intimidation. You've got a former WWE and Universal Champion in AJ Styles, I believe. If I'm wrong, please correct me. Former United States champion, former IC champion, former first universal champion, former IC champion, former United States champion, standing right in front of you, former tag team champion with AJ Styles and multiple championships across the world, all over across different companies. And then you've got little old Liv Morgan. And no shade to Liv Morgan, but she hasn't accomplished a lot of what they've accomplished. So I think that she was more intimidated by the fact that she didn't think she could bring anything to this stable that she wasn't good enough or she didn't measure up. But when you look at everything, Liv Morgan ultimately decided to join the crew. 
she came out to the ring with AJ Styles and Finn Balor. They had their match, and they ultimately ended up winning and crushing the competition. And they did their whole Bullet Club Too Sweet symbol. And that was the solidification of Liv Morgan being a part of the crew. This then moved on to a couple weeks down the line where all members of Judgment Day and Liv Morgan and AJ Styles and Finn Balor, Balor were embroiled in a battle of wits and, of course, physicality for the next couple of weeks. This past Monday, we got to see some comeuppance for Judgment Day. For whatever reason, Edge was not out there. I didn't watch Monday Night Raw, so I'm not sure as to why he wasn't out there. But it was just Damian Priest and Rhea Ripley. Priest and Ripley both were out there, of course, because Rhea was having a match Liv Morgan. Liv Morgan was competing, and Damian Priest was interfering in the match and causing more havoc as he usually does. Despite the distraction, Rhea Ripley was bested by Liv Morgan and Damian Priest attacked AJ Styles and this was basically a beatdown of AJ Styles. Rhea Ripley was still laid out for the moment, but <laughs> Damian Priest made it a point to look like he was going after Liv Morgan. She tried to jump on Damian to get him to stop attacking people, of course, but he went after her. That was when Finn came down to save the day. Finn neutralized Damian Priest. Rhea Ripley came back in the ring, and it was just Ripley, Finn, AJ Styles, and Elaine in wait. Liv Morgan. Liv Morgan climbed to the top of the ropes and drop kicked Rhea Ripley, and she rolled out of the ring. Judgment Day was down, and of course, the pseudo WWE style of Bullet Club including Liv Morgan, was standing tall in the ring. You got to see a little bit of fire from Liv Morgan on Monday night as well. She made sure to make it look as if she was ready to compete and that that confidence that she had lost when she was originally invited to join AJ Styles and Finn Balor had come back with a full vengeance. So now that you're fully caught up on what's about to happen at Hell in a Cell, there is a six-man tag team mixed tag team match that is set to happen at Hell in a Cell. It is going to be Liv Morgan, AJ Styles, and Finn Balor versus Judgment Day, which is Edge, Rhea Ripley, and Damian Priest. You have to ask yourself, what is going to will out? Is it going to be a classic good versus evil type of match, or are we going to get a twist like we've gotten for the last three Judgment Day matches against AJ Styles? <sighs> It doesn't look good for Styles and, and Finn and Liv Morgan, if you ask me. The odds are not in their favor, okay? Edge has had an ace in the hole every single time he's gone up against AJ Styles. He has been able to best him in every way that he could think of. He's always been two steps ahead. So the question is, has AJ finally figured out the rhythm? Has he finally figured out how to be two steps ahead of the master or is he still being taught? I don't know, but it seems to me like Judgment Day will will out and the new member of Judgment Day will be revealed probably at Hell in a Cell, whether they win, lose or draw. So that one I have no answer to in terms of who should win. 
Me personally, I just enjoy the feud. I wish it had a little bit more substance to it, a little bit more, I wish it was a little bit more toothsome. But for the basic aspect of it, it is just a good old fashioned good versus evil story. The question is, whose side are you on? Are you on AJ Styles' side, who's been pretty much getting beat down from the very beginning with no warning? And really, it's like he's a sacrificial lamb for a bigger purpose. Or are you on Edge's side? Because most of you guys always root for the villain anyway. Because for whatever reason, you sympathize with them. But that's a separate conversation for a separate day. (laughs) Edge obviously has a plan. And no one knows what that plan is except for him. So the omnipotent one is going to be a few steps ahead of AJ Styles because his end game has nothing to do with Styles. Whereas Styles' end game is to shut Edge down. Edge has a bigger picture. And I think that's where he edges out. No pun intended. But you guys have to tell me what you think. Now it's time to move on to the next match at Hell in a Cell. Omas, MVP, and Bobby Lashley. Now, y'all know I don't have no love lost for these three, but I will recap their storyline as best I can because, to my dismay and severe disdain, their storyline isn't that bad. So let's just get into how we got to the point where MVP and Bobby Lashley are no longer partners or friends, and they have now had Omas be the one to try to go after Bobby Lashley and MVP being his aggressor to continue that. MVP was out with a knee injury. It was a nagging knee injury that he had had for quite some time. It was one of the reasons why he would walk with a cane to the ring. It was a part of his character, but it was also because he needed some support to walk down to the ring. He got some time off to have the surgery to repair the knee injury. And so he was gone. While he was gone, Bobby Lashley also had an injury to his arm. One that he kayfabe got during um, Crown Jewel when he was inside the Elimination Chamber. But he actually was injured prior to that was removed from the match at Crown Jewel, and was gone for a couple of months. He was able to come back and compete because Omos had been on a tear for some months, just dismantling people on the roster. Whether they be local talent or current talent, he was killing them all. And he was just like, no one can take me down, you know, roaring and shit. (laughs) The next thing we know, Bobby Lashley's almighty music hits and he comes out to challenge Omos. And it looked like Omos got the drop on him every single time. But Bobby Lashley was able to dig down deep and provide the strength needed to get Omos off of his feet. And it worked. So Bobby Lashley and Omos was set to collide at WrestleMania and collide they did. I didn't too much care for the match, but they did have a match at WrestleMania, to which Bobby Lashley won. He, of course, came out Monday night and had an MVP. MVP set up a celebration for Bobby Lashley because Bobby Lashley did what nobody else could do. He bested the beast. This, of course, was all a ruse. 
MVP was incredibly jealous and upset that Bobby Lashley did something on his own without him. He wasn't allowed to be ringside at WrestleMania, mainly due to the fact that he was laid up with the, with recovering from surgery. But he felt like, I got you here. I'm the reason why you were champion two times in a row. It was me. If it wasn't for me, you'd still be out here sucking face with Lana, more than likely, or you'd be fired. I saved your ass, and you left me out in the cold. And, well, MVP doesn't like to be left out. So he set this up, made it look like he was celebrating Bobby Lashley when the whole time it was all a ruse to get him off his kilter and be able to attack him from the from behind, to which he did. And then he ordered Omas to attack him, to which he decided to take on Omas as a client. And they continued to attack and berate Bobby Lashley. This led to a series of matches with Bobby Lashley going up against Omas and then eventually going up against MVP. Bobby made it very clear that he wasn't trying to go after Omos, but he was going to go through him to get to MVP because MVP is the one who betrayed him. He didn't care about Omos because he had already beaten him. There was nothing to prove with Omos, but it was MVP he wanted to get his hands on. But in order to get to MVP, he had to go through that Nigerian beast called Omos. Well, it finally came to a head. A few weeks ago, Bobby Lashley won the right to go up against MVP that following week. He went up against MVP. They set a stipulation for this match. The match states whoever won could decide the stipulation for the match at Hell in a Cell. Unfortunately for Bobby Lashley, MVP won that match. And the stipulation was set later on that night. It would be a two-on-one match against Bobby Lashley at Hell in a Cell. Well, they decided to have a contract signing this past Monday, to which they said their woes and all their bullshit. And then it led to a full, to full-on anarchy amongst the two beasts. It took all of the security they could hire from the PC to come out there to hold all these people back. Now, MVP was already on the outskirts of the ring because, of course, he did not want to get hit. And every single security guard that was in there to protect everyone from themselves was tossed out onto the ground or beaten to hell. So then it was left to have Omos in the ring with Bobby Lashley, to which they finally collided. And MVP, in typical fashion, came in and laid him out. Actually, it wasn't MVP. It was Mighty Mouse himself, Cedric, who for whatever reason keeps trying to insert himself in the midst of this feud. But I digress. He ended up taking out Bobby Lashley, chop blocking him in the knee, and then kicking him in the face, to which Omas was able to continue the attack and MVP was able to help. They ended up standing over Bobby Lashley, and that's how it ended. And now here we are. Bobby Lashley will have to face MVP and Omos in a two-on-one match. 
Now, if you're asking me my personal humble opinion, I can give less than the fuck who wins this match. I have no love lost for Omos as a wrestler. I don't like him as a wrestler. MVP is a shitty ass person, kayfabe wise. And I've always hated his character from the very time he touched down in SmackDown up until now. He has always been a weasel of a man in, the, in character. Now, outside of kayfabe, he's probably one of my favorite people because of what he's done for black wrestlers. But then you have Bobby Lashley, who I have a love-hate relationship with. As a face, I can understand why he wants to go after MVP. MVP is causing him more havoc than he should. And it's, it's all because he's mad that he didn't include him at WrestleMania. Why would he? He was laid up after having a surgery recovering. He had a job to do at the end of the day and he's done things without him before, but he felt like he was moving on without him. And he felt like you don't leave someone who helped build your career. It is what it is, I guess. So now we're stuck in this limbo. And of course you got mighty mouse waiting in the wings waiting to give his opportunity to show and prove to MVP and Omas that he's loyal to the crew, that he's down for the cause. <sighs> the storyline is not bad. It's actually fairly decent. But because I hate everybody involved, except for Cedric, I just don't like him as a heel because he screams. For whatever reason, he's annoying and he just screams. Like, he doesn't talk, he just screens it's it's just like babe just just talk you don't have to scream you can just talk say what you got to say say it with your whole chest but why you got to scream at me you know like stop yelling mighty mouse okay jesus jesus christ anyway so again i don't have a dog in this fight quite frankly i don't care who wins because I know that match is going to be ass. I know a lot of people like Omos. But for me, I am not a big proponent of having big men in the wrestling ring who can't wrestle and can't move. You are just a big immovable object and it doesn't make sense for him to be there. While I understand that he has an end game to represent Nigeria in all its effervescent glory. I'm all for that. And I'm happy for him that he's there. I still feel like he has a lot to learn. He's very green and he doesn't move well in the ring. And for him to have the basketball training that he has in that background, he just doesn't have, he doesn't have the agility or the speed, the movement, the ease of movement that other big men who've been in the WWE have or across the world in wrestling promotions. He just doesn't have it. And the only thing that works for Omos is that he's big and black. And while that's all well and good, I'm not a big proponent of praising mediocrity. You either have it or you don't. And in my mind, Omos is a failure. But y'all live your best life. In terms of MVP, he's an old head trying to hang on to something that he can't do anymore. And that's just true tea. And in terms of Bobby Lashley... As I have always said, I have no love lost for Bobby Lashley. He is not one of my favorite people. But I have never, ever said that he is, he is not good at what he does. 
he is still one of the most athletically gifted superstars the WWE has. And being a black man, I will give him my support. But if you're asking me if I like Bobby Lashley and I enjoy all of his matches, you're crazy because I don't. But I will respect the man's craft and what he's capable of because he is good at what he does. So if I had to pick someone to go and vote for, I'm going to regret this because I know Terry from We Love Wrestling is never going to let me live this down. I'm going to go for Bobby Lashley. I hope he wins and he can move on to something else. With all that being said, it's time to move on to the last two matches that are set to happen at Hell in a Cell. Now it's time for the campy, campy fun stories. Ezekiel versus Kevin Owens has probably been one of the best storylines that WWE has come up with. It's funny, it's kooky, and it's campy. It also involves um, the Alpha Team or whatever they call themselves. What do they call themselves? Mm -hmm. Otis and um, Chad Academy. Gable. Yeah, it's Alpha Academy. My bad. So you got Alpha Academy teaming up with Kevin Owens trying to break Ezekiel because we all know <laughs> that Elias and Ezekiel are one and the same. But everyone is siding with Ezekiel. He calls himself Ezekiel. Therefore, he is Ezekiel. But Kevin Owens is not having it. Kevin is like, listen, this is fucking Elias. I know it's Elias. We can see it. The only thing he did to change himself was to shave his fucking beard. Y'all gonna stop making me look like I'm crazy. I'm not crazy. This is Elias. For weeks now, Elias Ezekiel, whatever he wants to call himself, has been coming out with his peach and white gear, which is just, it's just hideous gear. It's so ugly. But Ezekiel has been coming out as a face and introducing himself as Ezekiel. And everyone, including Kevin Owens, has been looking like, you're fucking Elias, bro. We know who you are. Well, Kevin Owens has been trying to get Elias to break and come out as himself. But Ezekiel is just like, that's my older brother. I'm Ezekiel and Elias is my brother. That's it. Well... For weeks upon weeks, Kevin has tried to find a way to get Elias to break. He wouldn't. He even went so far as to put that man through a lie detector test. The lie detector test proved that Ezekiel was telling the truth. And who was running the lie detector test? Our resident genius, Mr. Shoosh. Shoosh, please. Chad Gable of Alpha Academy. And even with all that... He still passed the, the test. So there was still no proof as to if Ezekiel and Elias are one and the same. And because Kevin Owens is a hothead and he was so frustrated, it led to countless beatdowns and attacks because he wants Ezekiel to admit that he's Elias because he knows that he's right. Now, this has led to a match at Hell in a Cell. This one was pretty simple and pretty straightforward. I don't want to recap it all because it was pretty easy to see. And there really wasn't much of a story to tell. Kevin Owens has lost his fucking mind because Ezekiel refuses to admit that he's Elias. And Kevin believes that he is right. It's so interesting, though, that this story parallels the way that Sami Zayn has been acting on SmackDown for the last year. 
Sami Zayn thought there was this entire conspiracy against him and no one believed in the conspiracy except for him. And even Kevin, his own former friend, turned foe, turned friend, turned foe again, was like, there's no conspiracy against you, man. Relax. What's wrong with you? Why, why are you doing this? And yet the tables are turned and Kevin himself feels like he is the one who has a conspiracy against him and no one believes him. It's, it's, it's such a hilarity that he doesn't, he doesn't see that he is right in Sami Zayn's place, the same place that he was in last year. It's, it's just funny. So the question is, who do you believe is going to win in this particular match? Do you have Sami Zayn? I mean, do you have Ezekiel or do you have Kevin Owens? I think Kevin Owens is probably going to win this match. And it might not be because Ezekiel did anything wrong or right. I think that this, he's just probably going to win. I really don't have a dog in this fight, to be honest with you. The storyline is entertaining and it's funny. And if, if Ezekiel wins, then good for Ezekiel. But if Kevin wins, I would, I would want to see where that goes. So it's going to be an interesting time to see what happens at Hell in a Cell between these two goofs. And we're going to start off with the biggest, biggest storyline to date. The saga of the American Nightmare, Cody Rhodes, and Seth freaking Rollins, a.k.a. Wrestling's Joker. So, where do we start? We start at WrestleMania. Now, this year's WrestleMania was probably one of the best WrestleManias in the last three years. I mean, we've been having closed arena WrestleManias and closed shows, and the pandemic kind of took the fun away from wrestling. And after the pandemic kind of let up a bit, and we were able to allow fans to come in and things started to get hype again, we started to see a wrestling renaissance. And I guess Cody Rose decided he wanted to be a part of that renaissance. Cody made a poignant change in the course of wrestling history, being one of the rivals company's biggest assets and draws and leaving to come back to the E, definitely a place in history. But Cody did not want to come back and just sow his wild oats. Oh, nay, nay, nay. Cody wanted to come back in the grandest fashion that he could. And well, what better way to return than at WrestleMania? But who to put you against? Well, that's where Seth freaking Rollins comes in. You see, for weeks, Seth Rollins was missing an opponent. He was missing that certain genesis mm, quoi, that good sprinkling of seasoning on his greatest match of all time list. And while Seth Rollins was toying with Kevin and trying to steal his spotlight with Stone Cold Steve Austin, there was a sinister plan in the works. Something that he was unaware of. Something that he couldn't quite understand or put his finger on. But he ultimately put himself smack dab in the middle of a plot to put Cody Rhodes at the pinnacle of the WWE. One of the biggest draws in WWE history. Cody Rhodes, the son of a plumber, the American dreams turn nightmare. You got to love the cinematic of it, you know? 
It's very poetic. While Seth Rollins was running around trying to convince everyone that he wanted to go to Mania and be having this awesome, awesome match, having a moment. I need my WrestleMania moment. Vince McMahon said, fine, I'll give you that moment, but I get to pick your opponent. And so the sinister plot was hatched. It had began. And while Seth had earned, or rather, talked his way into a match, he had no idea who that match was going to be against. Now, we all heard the rumors about the American Nightmare popping back up in WWE. But, of course, if you don't read the dirt sheets and weren't a part of that world, you didn't think it would be Cody. I mean... If you're just a casual fan and you're not diving into the mess of the wrestling IWC, then you wouldn't know that Cody Rhodes was going to be the guy. But I will say this, Cody Rhodes is a man of pageantry and he loves the walk, the, I don't know, the vibe of being a wrestler. He enjoys the showmanship of it. And boy, did he show up and show out at WrestleMania, honey. Now, given the fact that no one was supposed to know, it was a quote-unquote well-kept secret that Mr. Rhodes was returning to WWE. This match wasn't bad. In fact, it was really good. So, let's talk about Mania Night and then we'll move on to the rest of the feud. Seth Rollins shows up in his Liberace-inspired gear <laughs> it was Liberace inspired. You should go to King Troy's Twitter or Instagram, rather. He'll show you the pictures and he will say it was Liberace inspired. He had his Liberace inspired robe and he had his, his gear. He looked like a million bucks and he came out and he was ready. Sitting there looking like a Mortal Kombat character with no opponent. Just bouncing back and forth. Maybe more accurately on the Street Fighter point. Because the Street Fighter characters constantly move, right? But so do Mortal Kombat. I digress. We were all sitting there with bated breath. Who's it gonna be? Who's gonna be your mystery opponent? And well, the prodigal son reared his ugly head. And as the lights flickered out and the music hit, the American Nightmare emerged from the ground. Smoke and <laughs> pyro in tow. It was a grand fashion, and it was definitely something to see. The showmanship, my God, amazing. I have to say, Cody, you spent the budget, babe. You spent the budget. Now, as he walked down, this was the longest fucking entrance I've seen in my entire life for a mania opponent next to Romans, because we all know he moves like a goddamn snail coming down the ramp, okay? Six minutes. I'm telling you, it's six minutes counted, okay? From the time he walks down the ramp to the time he says, acknowledge me, that's his entrance. Kiss my ass, okay? Six minutes. Ridiculous. Anyway, I digress. I'm sorry. <laughs> Cody and Seth proceed to have one of the best matches of the night. It was well done. Very much equally yoked in terms of match quality. But ultimately, Cody was able to solidify the win over Seth freaking Rollins. And you know, Seth doesn't take losing too easily. 
He's not exactly a man of humility these days. He does not like to be humbled. He becomes very combative, jealous, and angry. And that is exactly what happened. That following Monday, he pretty much acknowledged Cody Rhodes and kind of, you know, did that gentleman's shake. He came out there, looked at him, gave him a nod, and then he left. And everybody thought, okay, Seth is fine. He's great. But if you know Seth freaking Rollins the way I know Seth freaking Rollins, you know this was just the beginning of a bunch of mess. And boy, was I right? I was right. Seth Rollins is not the kind of guy who would take kindly to that kind of a loss or any kind of loss. He's going to make it his mission to correct the wrong. And that's exactly what he did. He came out week after week after week, upset because he felt like he was blindsided by the American Nightmare. You had the option of anonymity, and I didn't have anything. You had the element of surprise, and I didn't have a chance to prepare. So, Cody says, fine. How do you suppose we correct this wrong you so rightfully feel like you have been experienced and it has been thrusted upon you? Despite the fact that you begged for this match, no matter who the opponent was, and you knew that there was going to be a surprise element, but you did it anyway. However, Seth said it's only fair that you compete against me at WrestleMania Backlash and we finally prove who the better man is because when I am not blindsided I am at my best and you can't beat me when I know that you're coming well Cody said I accept your challenge and then off they went into WrestleMania Backlash ready to go at it and do battle for part two Well, take a gander at how that went. (laughs) Didn't exactly go in Seth Rollins' favor again. Yeah, see, Seth thought he had the match in the bag. And for the most part, it was a back and forth between the two guys. Very much equally yoked in terms of skill, match quality, and ring awareness. And that's something that some wrestlers lack is ring awareness. Cody Rhodes and Seth both have a very keen eye when it comes to wrestling. And that's something that I admire in both of them. It's a trait that they both share, despite their arrogance, pompous, and extreme confidence, to which they both deserve, because they both are worth and definitely live up to the legacy that they've created for themselves. Now, Who do you think won this second bout? You see, outside of the kayfabe story, just gonna, you know, move into this for a little bit. I was dead set on Seth Rollins winning this match, winning it fair and square. Because to me, this would have just given Seth that little nudge to push Cody Rhodes over the the edge. Like, Nick, I gotta, I, I win. You know what I'm saying? And I figured it would move Cody into the only way to prove that I'm better than you is to beat you at your own game. And we're going to go out of that hell in a cell. I figured a one-in-one going into hell in a cell would be even better because you don't know who's going to win. Right? Like, 
you're definitely gonna be like, I need to see this. I gotta see who's gonna win in this feud, right? So me and my friend, Kenny, we had a bet. I bet that Seth Rollins was gonna win the match and she bet that Cody was gonna win. Take a guess at who won. It's fucking Cody. That shit cost me a Starbucks drink, okay? And I fucking hate Starbucks. <laughs> I still have to send her the money for the drink anyway. But to go back to the storyline. Cody Rose and Seth Rollins were going back and forth in this match. They were beating the hell out of each other. And it was the first match of the night of WrestleMania Backlash. Very much giving. I'm going to give you 150%. And I'm going to make this pay-per-view seem like it is definitely one of the big five. Well, it came down to the final minutes. And Seth Rollins decided, since I can't seem to keep you down with my normal wear and tear. Well, I'm going to beat the hell out of you and then roll you up and pull up your tights. And when the ref didn't catch it and Cody kicked out in time, Cody then rolled Seth Rollins up and used his tights and actually won the match. This incensed Seth freaking Rollins. Like, how dare you use my move against me and then win? Oh, no. This is not happening. He was very upset, very much in his feelings. And while Cody moved on and Monday Night Raw made it very clear that he was done with Seth Rollins. I have beat him twice. I don't have anything else to prove. This is over. I'm moving on to a new chapter in my life. And you know what sounds great? The American Nightmare as the United States Champion sounds beautiful. I can hear the gold ringing in my ears. And then off he went out into the abyss of people, lights, ring ropes, and you know, under armpit smells and beer <laughs> to go and wrestle the booty wrangler himself, Austin Theory. And might I add, they put on a pretty damn good match. Not going to lie, I'm not a big fan of Austin Theory these days, but I will say the man has skill. He did fairly well against the American Nightmare. However, that didn't last too long because Seth Rollins is never one to be forgotten. And it ain't over until he says it's over. And that man came into that arena and attacked Cody Rhodes and ended up curb stomping him on the announcer's table. Now, the announcers regarded it as a despicable act. How dare you do this to him? You could have killed him. You could have took him out, ended his career. Seth Rollins was very proud of his work, of course. He's never one to shy away from doing something dastardly to get what he wants. And what he wanted was to push Cody Rhodes into a place where he knew that he was going to just do exactly what he wanted. And what exactly did Seth Rollins want? Well, if you remember, Seth Rollins regards himself as many things. The Architect was his first nickname, the first moniker he came about. And what do architects do? They usually sketch, structure, and create buildings. They are known for their meticulous nature of setting up some of the most beautiful things in the world. Now, 
If you want to, you can use architect in a different term, mental. Someone who's an architect or a mental architect is someone who has the ability to construct and destroy anything that comes into their path. They have an ability to create things that they know are going to hold true. Let's move on to the second moniker he uses, the Messiah, the man of the hour, the number one guy, the numero uno. The Messiah is someone that can control the masses by master manipulation and pure, unadulterated narcissism. He can't see past his own face and nothing that he does is ever going to be flawed. The Messiah exists solely for the praise and admiration of you, the ones who look up to him, the ones who see him as a god. And then we have the visionary, very similar to the architect, but a visionary has the ability to foresee. They can see something that they are going to create or see what they have created to become something great. Putting all three of these monikers together with Seth freaking Rollins pretty much details the kind of man that you're dealing with. And one thing Cody Rhodes has seemed to have forgotten is that Seth is a bit of a chess player. And I think Cody Rhodes is playing checkers. But I also think, on the other hand, that Seth Rollins is underestimating Cody Rhodes. And while Cody might be playing checkers... Checkers is not an easy game to win either. Sometimes you can beat a king and a queen with just a few pieces on the board. It doesn't take much to kill a a person in a chess game or to kill a person in a checkers game. Checkers is also about strategy. And it is also about biding your time and picking your spots. And if you're not careful and you're so busy worrying about picking up checkers you'll miss the opportunity to win the game so we end up here with the visionary the architect the messiah structuring this feud to way to go into his favor despite the outcomes going in cody Rhodes' favor it seems like seth is pushing cody into this corner and after that curve slump it seems like cody has had a revelation This past Monday, Cody Rhodes came out and told everyone that he was not going to play this game with Seth Rollins anymore. He was done. And after that curb stump, he made it very personal. So now it is time to up the ante. Hell in a Cell is coming in June. And Cody Rhodes made it very clear that this is the final bout in the Seth versus Cody Rhodes saga. And he's going to make sure that Seth Rollins learns to respect the American nightmare. Well, we all know that our reigning resident Joker was listening somewhere. And instead of coming out, he did it in the true visionary fashion that he always does. And came up on the Titantron in this bright Citron yellow, neon yellow, greenish color suit which by the way looked very good on him that's a very nice color for him so troy if you're listening you should keep that color okay that color's gorgeous and this fishnet style shirt which was a bit eh 
for me, but he looked good. I felt like a t-shirt would have done him justice, in my opinion. The t-shirt, nice simple chain, flawless. But he went, he went for the for the fishnet shirt. Fine. All we got was a laugh. And he pretty much tried to make it appear as if Cody needed to think this through. This might be a mistake on your part. You might be moving just a little too fast. I thrive in this area. This is where I live. This is where I breathe. And if you put me in a cage with you, I will take you down. Cody says, fine. I'm so glad you accepted. So I guess the next thing to say to you is, I'll see you in hell. And then the segment goes off. So where do we stand here? You've got a god, man who believes himself to be a god. Very similar to our tribal chief. And then you have the American Nightmare. Who's not only trying to prove that he belongs back in the WWE. But he is coming to take the throne of the WWE. He wants to be the man on top. And Seth Rollins is saying, well, I'm one of the top guys and you're going to have to go through me to get to that throne. So now what do we do? Who do you choose? Do you pick the Messiah, the visionary, the architect? Seth, Seth freaking Rollins, is that who you choose? The man, the myth, and the legend? The man who structures all of the feuds and pushes them into these corners so that he can be in control at all times. Because without that control, you have a madman running around on your hands. Someone who is unhinged and has no authority to respect. So what do you do? Or on the other hand, do you pick Cody Rhodes, the prodigal son returned home? Someone who felt like he had to leave to grow up, to strengthen himself, to become a better man, a better wrestler, a better person. And now he's back in the WWE, placed dead smack at the top of the mountain with no fights to climb. The only person he has to go through is Seth Rollins. But is that mountain too high to climb? Is Seth Rollins insurmountable? The answer to that would be no. Because we've seen Seth lose to Cody Rhodes twice. And if we're going to be fair, Seth Rollins hasn't necessarily had a great track record within Hell in a Cell. But Cody Rhodes has been on quite the roll lately. And he has done some amazing things. Coming back to the WWE, he's put on amazing match after amazing match. I will give him that. But there is nothing like being locked inside that red cage. The brutality of the red cage is unlike any structure next to the elimination chamber. Has Cody bitten off more than he can chew? Or has Seth Rollins set himself up for failure once again? No one knows. But I am going to give you my vote. I believe that Seth Rollins is going to win this match. Now, does it sound like that's me trying to get redemption for my loss? Of course. But I think it'll be the greatest swerve in WWE history. Everybody expects Cody Rhodes to win this match. 
everybody. Now, logically, it would make sense for Cody to win. But kayfabe story-wise, it would be magic to have Seth Rollins beat him. Because that is the one thing that Seth Rollins would be able to hold over his head for the rest of his tenure in WWE. It would eat him alive. And you know Seth Rollins would dig that shit into his craw every single chance he got. It is one of those times where wrestling is just amazing. The storytelling can be great if it is done correctly. And this story, this fight, was told beautifully. I have to say for myself that this, this was a fun storyline to follow. I definitely enjoyed it. And I can't wait to see what happens at Hell in a Cell. So, you guys let me know. Who you think is going to win? Do you think it's going to be the visionary, the messiah, the architect, Seth freaking Rollins? Or do you think it's going to be the prodigal son, the American nightmare, who's going to beat Seth Rollins at Hell in a Cell? One of my favorite pay-per-views, by the way. I love Hell in a Cell. Most people hate it, but I love it. I love it so much. Who do you think is going to win? I'm hoping that Seth Rollins, just for the sake of the story being broken up. But you guys, let me know what you think. Spotify has a poll. You guys can check out the poll and let me know who you think's going to win. Let's move on to the next story.